Tonight's reading is going to be from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion's servant whom his masters valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go. And he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is God's word. Uh, evening, everyone. My name's Matt Fuller. If, I've, if we've um, uh, not met, shall we, um, shall we pray? And then we'll look at Luke 7 together. A great God and Father, we thank you that as we've had read this evening, you are the great shepherd of your sheep. And even when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, you are not one who leaves us. You are with us. You hold our hand. We know if we're Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who because he laid down his life for his sheep and has risen again and is on the throne of heaven, protects us, keeps us, will never allow us to be snatched away. And so, Father, no matter how familiar or unfamiliar that truth is, would we once again this evening be delighted, thrilled, that we have such a shepherd that holds our hand in the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. We ask it in his great name. Amen. Some things matter more than others. You know that. Sometimes at the time, something feels very important, but years later is less so. So you take your GCSEs, that's quite a big deal when you're 16, and you sort of care what you get. Uh, I would observe that 30 years later, I don't remember what I got. Um, and uh, I could try to describe the other day what I'd actually taken. I could only remember 9 out of 10. I couldn't even remember what I'd taken. At the time, I'm sure they seemed very important to me, but 
here, years later, less so. Do, do you remember the first boyfriend, girlfriend you had? And I do. And when you break up, or in my case, was dumped, yes. Um, <laughs> I remember uttering those perhaps familiar words. No one understands how I feel. Well, at the time, that seemed very important. But with full respect or, or, or appropriate respect to Anne-Marie Prue, um, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> I'm over it. I was nine, she was 10, but you know, <laughs> that may have been part of the issue. Uh, but uh, I'm over it now, and uh, I don't really care. There's some things at the time seemed very important, and later, Less so. At the end of your life, only one thing matters. When you die, only one thing matters. Did you put your faith in Jesus Christ? And that's not to say everything else is unimportant. But compared to that, that matters. And the things we care deeply about now, less so. The new job, the new course, the new studies, the new relationship, whatever it may be. When you die, one thing matters. Now, we don't think much about that because in the 21st century, not many people die at home and um, most of us will be fairly insulated. J just out of interest, this is non-rhetorical, I, I, I require your active engagement. Um, hands up if you've, if you've been with a dead body. I don't know what percentage that is, 10%. Take out the medics and we'll be a lot worse, probably. Because um, they're somewhat, you know, it's a sort of occupational uh, uh, activity. But even medics struggle. I read a report, well, this was a few months ago, actually, it was in the paper. The Royal College of F Physicians produced a report. It was called Talking About Dying. Uh, and in it, basically, doctors admitted that Overwhelmingly, they really struggle to speak to patients and relatives of patients about the fact that someone's about to die. Uh, and so most, it was like two-thirds admitted that they do everything they can to avoid actually engaging in that conversation. Well, if you're a doctor, you're going to have to have it. Some of you would have done it as, as teaching practice. Some of you medics, um, if nothing else, you'd have done it then. Uh, it's very different in real life. Every euphemism is produced to avoid saying the words, no, your, your spouse, I'm afraid, will die soon. We get insulated in the modern world. And so there are at least two outcomes of that, it's, it seems to me. One is that we're very poorly equipped when we do actually encounter death of someone we care about because it's just unfamiliar to us. And, and so those here who have had a parent die when they're young or a sibling die when young, it's utterly destabilizing. No, no one's prepared us. No one's 
taught us what to do with death. I mean, it's terrible. But we have no coping mechanisms because it's so unfamiliar to us. It's really hard. There's some things we still struggle to cope with. If you, if you lose your parents, you become an orphan. If you lose your spouse, you're a widow, a widower. If your child dies, you're a... We don't even have a word for it in English. You're a what? Well, you're a wreck. But no one knows what to call you. So we're poorly equipped to handle death. And a second outcome or consequence, and these are just two, but we don't rightly value the extraordinary gift that resurrection from the grave is. Because death is sort of over there, and we don't look at it, we don't encounter it. We may see a resurrection, but actually, it's only when death has drawn very close to you personally or in someone you love, all of a sudden resurrection means everything to you. And so for many of us, and we've been critical, it's just a consequence of how we live our lives. We just don't see, value, how extraordinary it is that Jesus has risen from the dead and says, I can take you to be with me. We just sort of assume it. But it is wonderful. And so for those of you who have encountered death closely, it's a weird thing. I remember when my father died, uh, spending some time alone with his body. You may think that's weird. I think it's quite a cathartic thing to do. But, um, you know, in the hour immediately after his death, there's this body, and I remember holding its hand, trying, but failing to give it a hug, because it wasn't it, and it was not my father. Because when the soul goes, oh, it's just a thing at that point. It's just horrible. Death makes you long for resurrection life. And when you die, only one thing matters. Have you put your trust in Jesus? If you're just joining us tonight, uh, we're spending uh, this term, really September through to uh, early December, in um, Luke's Gospel, in these just chapters, chapters four to nine, his ministry in uh, Galilee, um, before he goes on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, chapters seven and eight are all about healings. Chapter nine becomes something slightly different. He's teaching uh, his disciples, who would be the apostles in chapter nine. Chapter seven and eight are dominated by individual accounts of Jesus healing, saving people. And so they're somewhat dominated, or, or the, the, the verb that comes up recurrently is that Jesus heals or saves. I've put the references down there in chapter seven and eight on the top of the sheet. It's one word in, in the Greek language, so it's so. Uh, and when you translate it save, as in save for eternity, or heal, as in r- repairing the body here and now, you just gotta make a judgment call. It's the same word and you translate it just dependent on context because there's a deliberate ambiguity. Whenever Jesus heals 
someone physically. It's a pointer, it's a signpost to say he can save someone for eternity. So there's this deliberate ambiguity going on. And what we have in this passage tonight then are two stories about salvation from death. I think they're meant to be read together. They're about the same subject. Verse 11, soon afterwards, is sort of hyphenating them. It's like a modern double-barreled name, hyphenated together. These two stories, they run together. Two stories about salvation from death, saying that... Put your faith in Jesus because he can save you from death. That's the point, okay? Jesus can save you from death. So put your faith in him. These two stories, uh, the emphasis falls like this. Uh, The centurion knew the authority of Jesus. I think it's the main point there. And the widow saw the compassion of of Jesus, but they're overlapping. He can save from death. Okay, let's take them in turn. First then, the centurion knew the authority of Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 1, we get a break from uh, Jesus preaching, a sermon on the plain, and uh, now we're into his healing. Uh, Let's just look at the three actors mainly in this story, the elders, the centurion, and Jesus. They're the sort of main actors. So chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Okay. There were a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal this servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Well, the elders then, first of all, the the elders think he deserves help, this centurion. Now, he's clearly a good bloke because he values his servant highly. He doesn't just view his servant as some sort of commodity. He seems to care about him. Uh, And so he cares that this servant is ill and about to die. But the elders, do you see where the emphasis falls for them? They say to Jesus, can you come and help this Roman centurion because he deserves, middle of verse 4, he deserves to have you do this. Now, this will be a rare situation. Most Roman soldiers, culturally, just held the, uh, the, the nation, they held captive, the Jewish nation, with contempt. They viewed the Jews with contempt, their traditions with contempt, their religion with contempt. Um, so it's kind of unusual to have this gang of elders saying that this man deserves Jesus to have you involved, to have you come and help him. That's what they think. Second, though, that's the elders think that this is a deserved action. The soldier, he's very different. So the emphasis here is that he trusts Jesus' authority. Verse 6, Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. See, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve. The elders, the Jewish elders say, Jesus, you should help this guy. He, he, He really deserves it. He says, I don't deserve it. On what grounds then does he appeal to Jesus? Verse 7, look, I don't deserve it, 
But verse 7, that's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Wow, because I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does this. Huh. So did you see the soldier, he says, I don't deserve your help. I'm not worthy of your help. But I'm appealing to you because I get authority structures. I get them. So, look, I'm a Roman soldier. Caesar in Rome, he's a Tiberius Caesar. He's not going to come to my house. Uh, I'm just a little centurion. I don't expect Tiberius Caesar to come to my house and say, hey, Colin, um, Sorry, that's terrible. Um, uh, they don't even have the letter C in Latin, do they? So it wouldn't be like, uh, Kevin. No, it doesn't even work either. Anyway, what about Centurion, um, Cyril. Ah, Sextus, Sextus, that's a Roman name. Hey, Sextus. I think I've lost the point now. Um, uh, sorry. Tiberius Caesar's not going to come to my house and say, hey, Sextus Centurion, I've got a message for you. He's too important for that. But I get authority structures. I get if Tiberius Caesar in Rome issues an order, it comes to me, and I just do it. I do not hesitate. I do not argue. I do not debate. I do not prevaricate. I don't procrastinate. I just do it if I get an order that comes to me. I get that because I'm a soldier. And I get, Jesus, that just as I'm under Caesar's authority, all sickness is under your authority. You can give the command and the bloke is healed. I get that. You see, the elders think he deserves help. The soldier, he trusts Jesus' authority. And then Jesus, last little actor in this story, he's amazed. So verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who'd been sent returned to the house and found the servant. Well, I hope you see, Luke is not particularly bothered by the miracle. That's not the headline. I mean, it just happens. It doesn't even explain how it happens. We presume Jesus has spoken a word because that's what the centurions asked for. We're not told. The emphasis here is, in Luke's account, upon the faith of the centurion. Jesus is amazed at him or filled with wonder at him, another way of translating it. Do you know, in the whole of the four gospel accounts, Jesus, we're told Jesus is amazed twice. Once is in Mark chapter 6. We're told Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith in Nazareth, his town of birth. Here, he's amazed. He marvels. He is filled with wonder at the faith of this centurion. It's just very striking. Jesus never marvels at the temple of Jerusalem. All his disciples go, oh, look at it, Lord, it's amazing, isn't it? He said, well, I'll be destroyed in a few years, so I wouldn't worry about that. He doesn't marvel at the food at the finest of banquets. He doesn't marvel at the power of a storm on Lake Galilee where everyone else is terrified. But he says, do you know what? I marvel at this. 
the only thing positively in the whole of the four accounts of Jesus' life, he says, wow, wow. He's filled with wonder, he's amazed, he marvels at it. And you think, okay, well, scratch head, what is so amazing? Because in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, five others have been impressed and said, wow, Jesus has great authority. So what is it about this soldier that is more amazing than anything else that has happened in Israel? And it seems to be his utter confidence in Jesus' authority over death. Extraordinary, just has unwavering confidence. I get so I get command structures. Emperor says, go, I go. You say this guy's healed, it's, it's, I get that. Jesus, that's pretty amazing faith. Better than anything I've seen. Now, hear this rightly. When for you and me, we're not meant to think, hmm, look at the powerful faith of the centurion in Jesus. You and I are meant to think, look at the faith of centurion in powerful Jesus. This man's faith is impressive. Jesus says so. I've not seen anything like it. But you don't need to have that stronger faith. It's not the power of his faith. It's the faith in the one who is powerful. I always enjoy Martin Luther's little description of faith. Uh, he says, faith, it's, like, um, it's like, a, like, a, like a massive engagement ring. And um, you know, most, no one here really has such a thing. But every now and again, you, you, you see someone who, uh, a, a woman with an engagement ring on her finger. It's like a golf ball. Uh, it's just massive. You think you've stolen that from the crown jewels. It's just this vast, vast diamond. And uh, they walk in the room and you think, oh, who's put the mirror ball on? And um, it's just, you know, this vast, you know, every so often you meet someone, vast diamond ring. And Martin Luther says, he says, faith is just like those little bits of metal that hold on to the jewel. The jewel is Jesus. Faith just holds on to him. He's the treasure. Faith is of no value apart from what it holds on to. So don't be fooled. Don't think, well, I haven't got faith like the centurion. No, no one has. He's just amazing. But we have Jesus. It's faith in him. Faith in him is what sees this servant healed. So you don't need to have amazing faith you just need to have faith in Jesus. You need to have faith in the king of life because the king of life is stronger than death. And so this servant is healed. But you see the emphasis, the centurion knew the authority of Jesus. But then secondly, in the second little story, the widow. The widow saw the compassion of Jesus, um, of no value whatsoever, but I think this is probably my favorite story or little account in the whole of Luke's gospel. Uh, I think it's, it's just delightful. Um, let me just try and pull out three of, the, three of the gems that are here. 
Uh, first of all, the th- notable things. First, the sort of the tragedy of sin. Let me read it. Uh, verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, not the one in Scotland near Inverness. You may have been there, not that one. Um, uh, why do I say that? Um, Who's done that? Uh, Anyway, Um, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And then try and get the pathos of this scene. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. She's a widow, don't know her for how long, and now her only son has died. That's not just, we don't know if she had daughters, but that's not just a relative, but that is a source of income. No husband, no sons, no income in the culture of the time, no welfare state. At that time, all funerals would be on the day, unless it was very late in the evening, because, well, you don't want bodies rotting in the heat, to be honest, uh, in, uh, in Israel. So here's a woman, she's a widow, her only relative, maybe, but certainly her only son, her only source of income, her, her own, the only man has died, and it's that day. So it's raw, it's painful. A deeply distressing occasion. But here is the tragedy of sin. Here is the consequence of life in a fallen world. Death is an enemy, a stranger, an aberration, not natural. The death of humans is a consequence of human rebellion. It's not meant to be this way. It's partly why when someone dies unexpectedly, particularly a tragic death of someone young, we say, no. Did you hear that Philip died? No. Why do we say no? Everyone dies. We're not expecting it, but partly there's just something instinctive to us. We say, wrong. Shouldn't be that way. Why why is life so unfair? Why is life so unreasonable? Why do some people suffer more than others? Why is life so hard for some people? You can only really ask the question why if you think that originally there was some creator with a design. Think of it this way, when you, for Christmas, you get what you asked for, you get your, and it's a jigsaw, um, because you wanted a jigsaw for Christmas. It's a lovely thousand-piece jigsaw of the Lake District, and, um, and you spend uh, Christmas making it. This is the highlight of your year, as you, because you love jigsaws, but you only have time at Christmas. I don't know, what, what is this? You're very good at them. Look at that. Um, uh, and then you finish... You finish it, apart from you realize there's two pieces missing. And it was brand new, and it came in cellophane and everything. It was from John Lewis, and still, there were two pieces missing. 
and you're angry and you say, that's, that's uh, so unfair, that's unreasonable. By contrast, if you went to the recycling bin over there and pulled out a load of random bits of cardboard, you, you wouldn't really be, it'd be odd if you said, well, I can't make a picture of the Lake District from these bits of coffee cup and whatever randomness there is in there. You, you, if everything's random, you can't get angry and say, why? You only do that if you think there's a design and something's gone wrong. When we say it's not fair, life is, shouldn't be that way, we're instinctively in our human nature saying, because we do think that there is a design. We think that something's gone wrong. We don't actually think emotionally that it's all random. We need more. We want more than that. Here is the tragedy of sin. But note, second little thing, the main thing, the, the compassion of Jesus. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Well, that's quite a brave thing to say or unkind thing to say. Can you imagine just going up to a funeral and, and people are crying and say, well, don't cry. I mean, it'd be a pretty brutal thing to say, actually. But we know what Jesus is about to do. We're told his heart went out to her. Uh, literally, it's a visceral term. Uh, his heart went out to her. His entrails churned. I, mean, I guess the closest we have in English is the idiom. He found it gut-wrenching. He's deeply moved. He's distressed. I think that matters. Because when you're in the midst of distress and pain and grief, you can know that Jesus is not a distant God who doesn't care. And he's not indifferent. And he's not far off. He finds it gut-wrenching. He is the one who holds your hand and says, I hate this too. He cares. It's not an answer to suffering. It doesn't do that. But it does make all the difference in the world in the midst of pain and suffering to know that Jesus cares. The tragedy of sin, the compassion of Jesus, and then I guess the, the emphasis falls also on the ease of the miracle. Verse 14, he said, don't cry to the, to the widow. Verse 14, then he went up and touched the beer they're carrying him on, sort of open coffin in those days, like a plank, I guess. And, um, uh, and the bearer stood still, and he said, well, young man, I say to you, get up. And we're told three things happened. Verse 15, the dead man sat up. He began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. I think there is a stunning beauty in the simplicity of that last phrase. He gave him back to his mother. This woman had, we're told, a large crowd helping her grieve. That helps. She had words from Jesus. Well, that's nice. But he gave her son back to her. Well, that's everything. Of course, for many of us here, it's easy to think, well, okay, that's a nice story. But Jesus does not do that for every grieving parent who's lost a child. No, he doesn't. But this is a 
massive signpost to what he can do and will do. Here in Luke's gospel, it's pointing forward to chapter 24 when he dies, enters the grave and rises again. And then says, if you trust in me, I'll take you through that journey too. You may well die physically, but you'll rise again. And that makes all the difference in the world. See, Jesus gave the son back to the mother. But, we'll guess it's this way around, presumably in a few years, the mother would have died. And the son would have grieved. And if that was it, a couple more years. But Jesus is saying something far more than that. I can restore you, I can reunite your family forever in heaven. The centurion shows that Jesus has authority over death. The widow shows that Jesus cares deeply about the pain of death. So trust him. This first crowd then, verse 16, what are we told? They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Do please note the culture that the people in the first century, they didn't say, they didn't say, oh, resurrection from the dead. Well, we see that sort of thing all the time. Oh, we're so gullible in our day and age. We just think it happens all the time. People raised from the dead. And, oh, you know, we're so stupid in the first century. We don't even know how electricity works or that people don't rise from the dead because we're just thick. Um, doesn't say that. It says they're all amazed. They're filled with awe. Oh, this is extraordinary that this would happen. Amazing that this would take place. Biblically, there's not been a resurrection from the dead for 900 years. They don't happen that much in the Bible, you know. The last one was Elisha 900 years ago. No one had seen that. No one expects it to happen. It's the first time for centuries. Of course they're amazed. It's unusual that this happens physically in real life. So don't say they're stupid and gullible back then. They're surprised. And they think, oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. What do you and I do with this? Let me suggest three little things, then we're done. The first, I think this helps, well, it helps you to cope now. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. Some would have read this. It's, um, it's a book by Andrew and Rachel Wilson. You know, they're, uh, they're a Christian couple. They've got two autistic kids. And uh, life is complicated, very complicated. And so they put it this way. I daydream about having ordinary conversations with the children in a world free of autism, epilepsy, and hyperactivity. In his beautiful description of the resurrection, Paul says that bodies which are currently perishable, dishonorable, and weak will be raised imperishable in glory and power. The tube fed will enjoy home cooking. The wheelchair-bound will go water skiing and climb mountains. Those who cannot speak will sing and describe and discuss. There'll be no need for words like syndrome or degenerative. Yeah, look, we've got two severely disabled kids and this is not what we thought life would be like. But we look forward. We look forward 
a friend with a similarly severely disabled child. I remember this, this was about a decade ago, stupid mistake of asking him, do you, do, you, do you look at, change your name, Millie, do you look at her and, and look forward to heaven? He just sort of looked at me as if I was an idiot, which I was, and said, every day, I want to see her healed. So I look forward every day to being with her in heaven. The hope of resurrection gives remarkable ability to cope with pain and suffering in this world. That'd be one thing. Cope, you can cope now better. Uh, the second would be to rejoice now. We don't celebrate resurrection enough because we hide death away. So how about this advice? I forgot to bring it off my bookshelf. Um, Richard Baxter, who's a Puritan writing in the 17th century, uh, his advice to his congregation, and uh, so feel free to adopt this if you think it's sensible, his advice was every Sunday afternoon after church, because I went to church in the morning, every Sunday afternoon, go and walk through the graveyards. Go and hang out in a graveyard every Sunday afternoon, and that'll make you long for heaven. Now, take that and do with that if, 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 if you wish. There's something about that which is odd, and there's something about it which is very wise. What it produced in his life is a book, I forgot to bring it with me, about this thick, with small font, called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And it's his meditations on looking forward to being with Jesus in heaven, and they're very wonderful. All sorts of things. Here's a little one. Here's one from Richard Baxter. When I look in the faces of the precious people of God and believingly think of that day, Resurrection Day, what a refreshing thought it is. He who commands us so to love them now will give us leave to love them then, when himself has made them much more lovely. I know that Christ is all in all and that it is the presence of God that makes heaven to be heaven, but yet it much sweetens the thoughts of that place to me that there are there such a multitude of my most dear and precious friends in Christ. I think that's very helpful. Just, I know, I know, I know. The best thing about heaven is Jesus. I know that. But sometimes I, uh, you know, I, I struggle to get my head around that. And I think the people I know now and love now, they'll be like them, but without even the small irritating bits. And I'll love them even more then. Helps me enjoy them even more now. Yeah, look forward. Helps to cope now. You can help you to rejoice now. Here's the last little thing. I just need to check <laughs> or ask. Have you trusted him yourself? When you die, only one thing matters. Uh, a few years ago, uh, not at this church, another church, a lad called James Marr, one of you may know him, um, uh, one of the churches in, in our little network, uh, James Marr, uh, married to, um, well, married to Sarah, but uh, he, he died age 27 from cancer. He was a pretty unassuming lad, um, you know, unremarkable in many ways. Uh, one of the last things he said was, um, I think I've been more useful at church in the last few months as I've been dying than I was in the preceding four years of decent health. 
Because all of a sudden, all the 20-somethings are going, oh, 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 right, that can happen. You can die and leave a widow. Oh, right. And you're, you're trusting Jesus, yeah. Yeah, we see that matters. That really matters. Oh, and we were, ex we were excited about this or worried about this. Oh, now we see what matters. In the end, only one thing matters. Have you trusted him? Because he's the one who saves from death. What an extraordinary truth that is. And if you don't value it, go and walk in the graveyards. And if you've never seen death, you might think it's nice. But in the end, this is everything. Let me lead us in prayer. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Our great God and Father, those simple words, what extraordinary truth they contain. That those we love most, we can be reunited with them through trusting in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that for ourselves, we can look forward to an eternity of joy and blissful delight in your presence because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That so, Father, would we not ignore, not neglect how wonderful a truth this is, but cherish it, cling to it, know that this matters more than anything else, and therefore praise you, for you are the one who is mighty to save. The Lord Jesus is the King, more powerful even than death, and we praise you for it. Amen.